everyone. Welcome to X-Men Unraveled. My name is Noelle, and in this podcast, I cover the stories of the X-Men in chronological order. Today is part two of Magneto's early life. If you haven't heard part one, stop and go listen to that first. To recap for everyone who's listened to part one, seriously, if you haven't, stop this podcast and go back and listen to that episode first. Okay, now that everyone has heard that, um, quick recap. Magneto was born Max Eisenhardt to a German-Jewish family in the 1920s. He experienced the takeover of the Nazi party and subsequent persecution of Jews in Germany. He and his family fled to Poland, only to be caught up in the Nazi invasion and takeover of the country. They barely survived an attack by the Einsatzgruppen, Nazi murder units, who attacked the village that they were staying in. Then he and his family decided to make their way to Warsaw, where they thought they would be safe as refugees in the large Jewish community already living there. So we'll pick up from that point today. I'm going to use the same template as last time, so we'll follow Magneto's life, but we're also going to get into the real history of the Holocaust as well. Since everyone has listened to the first episode about Magneto, you already know why I feel it's important to cover the real history along with the fictional Magneto's life, so I won't take up your time with that today. But most of my historical information comes from the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum's website, so definitely check that out if you want a place to start with any of the history mentioned in the episode. I am going to go into Magneto's life after the war as well, Technically, this will jump ahead of the chronology of other mutants, but I think it makes more sense to tell Magneto's early life in one coherent story so that we can understand where he's come from and his background and how he becomes the villain that we all know later. So, with that, let's get back to Magneto's life as a young Max Eisenhart from the series Magneto Testament. By September of 1939, Max and his family have arrived in Warsaw. He is with his parents, sister, and uncle Eric. The writers of the comic tell us that the Jewish population of Warsaw increased from 350,000 to 500,000 with the arrival of refugees like Max and his family. Jews had faced discrimination in Warsaw for centuries prior to World War II. At various times, they were expelled from the city faced regulations on where they could live, and all sorts of anti-Semitic violence. But in 1809, a Jewish quarter was established where Jews were able to live and practice their faith. That didn't mean that things always improved, but Jews were able to build their lives there, and by the time of the war, the Jewish population made up about a third of the total population of Warsaw. So it's easy to see why the Eisenhards thought it would be a good place to relocate. However, the Nazis took over Warsaw and Poland in 1939, which, of course, led to more anti-Jewish laws and sentiments and violence. The Nazis just exported the persecution they were already carrying out in Germany into Poland. The writers of the comic tell us that refugee families like the Eisenhards had to live together in basically single rooms. Overall conditions were terrible, there wasn't enough food, radios were confiscated, and coal was so scarce that people called it black pearls. Nazis also instituted a policy that required Jews to identify themselves with armbands that had a Star of David on it. They also severely restricted Jewish life, closing schools, conscripting Jewish men for forced labor, and closing synagogues and other Jewish community centers. 
1940, so the year after the Eisenhards arrived, the Nazis established the Warsaw Ghetto, an area of about 1.3 square miles where the entire Jewish population of the city had to relocate. It was surrounded by a 10-foot wall topped with barbed wire and broken glass, and so Max and his family were forced to move along with the rest of the Jewish population into this area. For some perspective, that meant that 30% of the city's population now lived in less than 2.5% of the land. From this point, the already difficult conditions faced by Jewish refugees got even worse. Food was more scarce than ever, and then the Nazis implemented a rationing program that allotted 184 calories per day for each Jewish resident. As you can imagine, many people died of starvation. The comic writers add that about 2,000 people per month starved to death in the Warsaw Ghetto. Crowding also led to the spread of illness and disease, so death was rampant. At least 80,000 people perished in the Warsaw Ghetto, according to the Yad Vashem Memorial Center. Smuggling food and other supplies became the only way for most people to survive. Max found a way to sneak out of the ghetto through a small hole in the bottom of a wall, and so he would sneak out, hide his armband, and get past the guards who were blocking the way to the rest of the city. Uh, one day, another young starving boy saw him do this and decided to follow him, but he wasn't as well prepared to know what to do, and the guards caught him and shot him in the streets. Leaving the ghetto brought a death sentence for any Jews caught outside. Max saw this, was furious that it happened, felt terrible, and he had a small knife and wanted to attack the guards for killing the boy, but his uncle Eric happened to be nearby and stopped him. He told Max that the only way to defeat the Nazis was to survive. While he was out in the rest of the city, Max managed to find a coin on the ground, and it was enough to buy a single tomato and half a pound of beef. He snuck back in, brought it to his family, and his sister Ruthie was deathly ill and malnourished, and the food helped her make it through. In 1942, Max saw people put on trains heading out of the Warsaw Ghetto. He heard people sharing rumors that they were being sent somewhere safe where there was work, food, and places for families li to live together. But when Max snuck up to one of the train cars and looked inside, there was a pool of blood. People on those trains were actually being taken to Treblinka, a killing center established by the Nazis in northeast Poland. There had been a forced labor camp there since 1941, but in 1942, the Nazis finished constructing a killing center. It was built solely for murdering Jews in Nazi-occupied territory. About 265,000 Jews were sent to Treblinka by train from the Warsaw Ghetto and murdered in gas chambers there. Max and his family learned what was going on, and so they used Max and Eric's smuggling skills to escape the ghetto altogether. Eric, though, at the last minute after he got the rest of the family out, decided to stay behind. He had had enough running and wanted to stay and fight. Max wanted to stay with him, but his father and uncle made him leave. The Eisenhards had a contact on the outside to help bring them down the river and out of Warsaw, but when they got outside of the city, they were ambushed as soon as they left the boat and got onto land. Their contact had turned them over to the Nazis because they were holding her mother hostage. But the Nazis forced everyone, including the contact, into a line in front of a firing squad. 
Max was the only survivor, and he only made it because his father pushed him out of the way of the bullets. At first, when I read it, I thought that he had used his powers to shift the course of the bullets, um, but he doesn't have his powers yet, and it was his father's quick thinking that saved his life. But even though he survived, Max has to pretend to be dead, and so he's left in a pit full of bodies, including those of his mother, father, and sister, and he has to stay there for hours until there's no more soldiers around and it's safe for him to escape. When he is finally able to leave, he ends up back in Warsaw and ultimately put on one of the deportation trains. This train isn't on the way to Treblinka, it takes him to Auschwitz. By this time in the story, it's 1942, about seven years after the beginning of the story. Max is 16 years old and has been brought to the hell that was Auschwitz. He stepped off the train and into the camp, and he sees an old teacher of his named Fritz Kalb wearing the black and white striped clothes of an Auschwitz prisoner. Kalb tells Max to say he's 18 when the SS guards ask and tell them that he's willing to work. This is what saves Max from being sent to the gas chambers. Auschwitz is more well-known than other camps like Treblinka, so I won't get too much into the details, but it was established in 1940 as a concentration camp and expanded to include multiple camps and several killing centers, or the gas chambers. Trains of victims arrived 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for years on end. The SS carried out a selection process of every person who arrived, and they did this with like this, this immoral objectivity. Families were separated, men to one side, women and children to the other. Men were sorted by age and health to either be sent to forced labor in the camp or to be sent to the gas chambers. Women with children were usually sent straight to the gas chambers as that was easier than separating them from their children. Many women, though, if they were young and without children, were also sent to the labor camps. Adolescents were an especially vulnerable age group, like we saw with Max. If they were too young or too small, they would be sent to be killed. But if they were selected for the camp, then they had to face the brutal dehumanizing ordeal of trying to survive. The Auschwitz Memorial Museum notes that of the hundreds of thousands of people brought to the camp, only about 20% were selected for labor. The rest were immediately murdered. Medical doctors took part in this selection process, like the monster Joseph Mengele. He's known for conducting horrendous experiments on prisoners during the years that Auschwitz operated. The shit that Mengele did was utterly barbaric, um, and I'm not going to cover the details, but basically he used his medical knowledge without regard for the lives of those he tortured. Working alongside Mengele in the comics was Nathaniel Essex, better known as Mr. Sinister. In his efforts to find mutants, he would select children from the groups brought to Auschwitz and conduct his own terrible experiments on them. Magneto reveals in Excalibur No. 7 from 2005 that he saw Sinister carry out these selections. He would come up to children, offer them candy, lead them away, and they would think that they were going somewhere safe, and then he would torture them in his quote-unquote scientific endeavors. And we've seen how brutal Sinister can be in his torture of Wolverine that I covered a few episodes ago. So just in case it hasn't been clear how horrible he is, um, he joined the Nazis and tortured children alongside Mengele. 
Sinister's work is obviously fictional, but it is based on the despicable acts of Mengele, and Magneto was there and saw firsthand the effects of the torture that these two carried out. After Max is selected for the camp, he is sent with the other men for processing. They are stripped naked, their heads are shaved, they're forced to shower together, and then they're given prisoner uniforms with badges marking their status. Jews um, had a yellow Star of David on their uniforms, red triangles marked political prisoners, gay men had a pink triangle on their uniforms, um, and the letter P marked the uniform of Poles, and there were many, many others. Prisoners were also tattooed um, with their prisoner number. After all of that, prisoners were sent to small, overcrowded barracks. Their food rations were unbearably small, usually watery coffee for breakfast, weak broth with vegetables for lunch, and a piece of bread with a small amount of sausage, cheese, or margarine for dinner. And this is what Max was sent to once he made it past selection. Once he's inside, his old teacher Kalb found him again. He tells Max that he's part of the Canada detail, and Canada was a section of the arrival area near the trains where all of the belongings of the people transported to the camp were deposited. Canada was a nickname started by the prisoners. Um, I read because they thought of Canada as a place of wealth. The members of the Canada detail sorted through the abandoned items. Most were sent on to Germany, although some items were taken by the Canada prisoners as bribes to the SS guards in the camp. Kalb, Max's teacher, hoped to use what he could gather from the belongings to bribe the guards and have Max assigned to that detail with him. Unfortunately, that would take time, and all Kalb could offer Max was the advice to stay alive. Max worked, he tried to stay out of the way of the guards, and scraped by in the terrible camp conditions. When Kalb finally had his plan in place, though, he's getting ready to bring Max over, have him assigned, and he was taken by the SS for another duty. He was forced to work as a Zonderkommando. Zonderkommando means special command unit, and it's an extremely vague term for what these men had to do. These units had to oversee the process of moving new arrivals through to their execution. They would direct them to the areas to remove their clothing and into what the arrivals believed were showers, but of course were actually gas chambers. Max, the first time he sees this, is horrified at what they have to do. He asks one of his comrades how they can just escort people to their deaths like that, and the man tells him straightforwardly that If they tell the arrivals what's going to happen, they will panic and the Nazis will beat and shoot the children before they are still sent to the gas chambers. After the people are murdered, Zonderkommando have to clear the bodies out of the gas chambers and search them for any hidden valuables, including gold teeth, which they have to remove. After that, they have to carry out burning the bodies in the crematoriums or in pits. It's truly one of the worst assignments Max could have been given. Most Zonderkommandos last only a few months before they were killed themselves. Kalb is horrified at what Max was recruited into and says he'll do whatever he can to get him out, but Max is stuck and remains in the unit for two years. He writes a letter where he says he personally saw a quarter million people murdered, and one of them was his old teacher, Kalb. One day in 1944, Max sees someone in another part of Auschwitz that he hasn't seen since he was in Berlin. It's Magda. She, along with thousands of other Roma, had been brought to Auschwitz and held in what was called the Gypsy Camp. 
About 20,000 Roma were brought to Auschwitz and faced the horrendous conditions of the camp. Magda, though, is still wearing the necklace he made for her, and they see each other from opposite sides of a barbed wire fence. And for the first time in two years at least, Max has a reason to keep going. Max gets a moment to talk to Magda a few days later, and he's managed to bribe a nurse at Block 32 to give her a job. This would earn her better rations and access to medicine. Block 32 was ostensibly a hospital, but it was one of the places where Joseph Mengele would carry out his many experiments. Not long after this, Max overhears two SS officers talking about further liquidations of the Auschwitz population, meaning the planned mass murders of more groups of prisoners. The Roma were set to be executed in July of 1944. Max bribes more guards to get a minute to talk to Magda. She thinks that things will be okay because the Roma had staged an uprising in May of that year, and the Nazis then scrapped their plans for their mass execution at that time. But Max reminds her that they transferred the strongest people out of the camp, including most of the men, and then let conditions deteriorate, people were getting sicker and weaker, and Max knows that there's no way they can possibly overcome the Nazis again. So Max starts working on a plan to get Magda out. He gets a place for her on a transport to another work camp without a killing center. And if she doesn't make it to the train, he tells her she has to hide in the bodies of other people around and she will be brought to Max because he paid off um, one of the individuals who would be on that detail. On August 2nd of 1944, the Nazis finally carry out the liquidation of the Roma camp, murdering the 2,300 individuals left, but Magda has made it out on the train that Max arranged. Estimates of the Roma death toll are that of the 23,000 Roma sent to Auschwitz, 19,000 perished or were murdered there, so very few managed to survive. After the relief of Magda's escape, Max is still working as a Zonderkommando, and his unit learns that they are slated for the next liquidation. As a last resort, they decide to stage a revolt. But before it takes place, Max learns that Magda has been sent back. She and the other Roma that have been returned are to be murdered. At this time, she has to use the backup plan that Max came up with before her transport, and she manages to smuggle herself to Max in a cart of corpses. Some of Max's unit are worried that her presence is going to get them all killed before the revolt can take place, because if the guards come in and see her, she's not supposed to be there. It's just not going to be good for them. But as they're arguing about it, an explosion rocks the camp, and the uprising has begun. A group of Zonderkommando blew up one of the crematoriums, causing pandemonium in the camp. The others have gathered small amounts of weapons, whatever they could find, to fight. About half of the Zonderkommando are killed in the camp. The other half escape, but most of them are caught and murdered as well. This uprising took place on October 7th, 1944. Mass murders continued shortly thereafter, um, but the Allies are also moving toward the camp. At this point, the Nazis tried to hide the evidence of their crimes and destroy the remaining gas chambers in the camp. On January 27, 1945, the Soviet army liberated Auschwitz. About 7,000 prisoners remained. Many of them who had been there before were uh, made to go on forced marches away. The Nazis were trying to get all the prisoners out so there would be less evidence of what they'd done. Um, so only those 7,000 were there um, for the liberation. In all, at least 1 million people died at Auschwitz. But Max and Magna managed to escape in the chaos of the Zonderkommando revolt. 
And that is the end of the story told in Magneto Testament. Um, but there's some other comics that provide details into their life after their escape. So we will get into that section next. Magneto's life after his escape from Auschwitz becomes difficult to follow. Um, it's told across various series and different comic issues, including flashbacks, and it requires some piecing together, much like Wolverine's story. In Classic X-Men number 12 from 1986, Chris Claremont wrote the story of Max and Magda's life after their escape. Magneto remembers these events as a flashback. So once they get out, um, the two of them are wandering alone through the wilderness to try and get as far away from Auschwitz and the Nazis as they can. They're starving and are just barely managing to survive. Magneto tells how they went south towards the Carpathian Mountains, which run across the Czech Republic and Romania. Eventually, they find a small town, they stop there, Magneto is able to get work, um, and they set up a life together. The two of them do get married, and they have a daughter named Anya. Max wants to go to school and better their lives, so they head into the Soviet Union, settling in Ukraine. Max finds work in construction, but after he's started working, his foreman cheats him out of his pay. Max confronts him, and when the man makes him mad, without knowing how or even realizing he's doing it, Max picks up a crowbar off the ground uh, without touching it, and it flies through the air and slams into the wall next to the man's head. The man is terrified and gives Max his pay, and he's left there trying to figure out what happened. He's completely unaware that he's a mutant and that he has any powers at all, so he just has no idea how the crowbar moved. So with his money and confused about what happened, he goes back to the inn where he's been staying with Magda and Anya, but it's on fire. Anya was upstairs sleeping in their room, and Magda hasn't been able to get to her while the building's on fire. Max runs in with her, they're trying to get upstairs, um, but they end up trapped on the first floor. As they're trying to get upstairs, the fire spreads behind them, and they can't get to Anya or out of the inn. Then Max unconsciously creates um, some sort of force field with his powers that protects them from the fire. Um, it seems like the stress of the situation is just like increasing his powers exponentially as he's going through this now that they're activated. Max is trying to figure out how to make his power work so that he can get to Anya, um, but two police officers grab him and arrest him for his attack on the foreman. Max tries telling them that he needs to get into his daughter who's in the building, but they don't listen, they beat him, and it's too late. Anya dies in the fire, and Max goes into a rage, killing everyone around him from the village. He's just distraught and devastated and blames them for Anya's death. Magda is shocked both from the loss of their daughter and what Max has done, and he tells her that his power should have saved their daughter, but instead he could only avenge her. But Magda doesn't find any comfort in that. She's disgusted at what he's done, and she runs away from Max, calling him a monster. He reveals in the flashback that he never saw her again after that once she knew he was a mutant. In Avengers number 186 from 1979, a story is told of Magda finding shelter in the Wundagore Mountains. I have no idea if I'm saying that right. But anyway, when she got there, she gave birth to twins, Wanda and Pietro, who would grow up to be the Scarlet Witch, and Quicksilver, who it was assumed for a long time were the children of Magneto. After their birth, she fled, thinking that Magneto would find them, and she's assumed to have perished in the mountains. 
However, in the series Scarlet Witch from 2015 and 2017, uh, it was revealed that this story wasn't actually true, um, and Magda and Magneto were not the parents of Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver. Uh, it's all very complicated, and all we know is that Magda must have died not long after her daughter. Personally, I prefer the story that Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver are Magneto's children, um, but that was changed, so unless they change it again, they were not born in the mountains after Magda left Magneto. But Magneto continues his story in Uncanny X-Men number 304, where he says he was trying to find Magda after she left. While he's looking for her, he's tracked down by a group of people looking for the man that killed the residents of the Ukrainian town. But by this time, Magneto is well in control of his powers, and he takes them all out easily. This issue also explains the late onset of his powers, um, and it says that it resulted from a bout of hepatitis from the conditions in either the Warsaw Ghetto or Auschwitz, and his illness delayed the emergence of his mutant abilities. So this would provide some reason why his teenage years and the stress of surviving the Holocaust didn't mark the beginning of his powers emerging. Puberty and times of stress are often both factors in the onset of a mutant's powers, but the physical toll of his suffering throughout World War II must have left him too weak to manifest his abilities. So that's why we don't see them until he arrives in that town and is upset at the foreman. One important thing to note about Magneto is that his worldview is shaped by his experience in the Holocaust because he's seen the absolute worst of humanity, but that isn't what turned him into the destructive and dangerous villain he would become. That came from the death of his daughter to the cruelty and apathy of the bystanders. And that, in addition to Magda's rejection because he's a mutant and because he killed all those people, um... All of that just combines to lead him to become the villain who sought the supremacy of mutants above humans. Sometime after these events, Magneto starts tracking down Nazis who have escaped punishment and are living their lives throughout the world. He takes on a new name, Eric Magnus Lenscher, and he finds a forger named Georg Odekirk who creates documents with this new identity. Um, this is revealed in X-Men number 72 from 1991. At that time, he leaves behind the name Max Eisenhart and is only known as Eric Magnus Lenscher. Eric, you'll remember, was his uncle's name. He was the one who chose to stay and fight against the Nazis in the Warsaw Ghetto, so it seems like Magneto honored his uncle by taking his name. Magnus means great, but also has similar sounds to the word magnet. Um, he has powers over magnetic fields, so it's probably a tie to both of those things. And Lenscher can be broken down in German to mean something like feudal lord, so there's a lot of important elements to this new alias that he takes on. The last story I want to cover today is from Uncanny X-Men number 161, where Magneto meets Professor Xavier. Content warning that this story will involve mentions of sexual violence and suicide. There's no exact year given, but it seems to be in the 1950s, as at one point someone mentions the Korean War. Um, but Charles Xavier is the man who will form the X-Men team, and he has arrived at a mental hospital in Israel where Holocaust survivors are being treated for PTSD and other mental ailments as a result of their trauma. When he arrives, Xavier is introduced to a volunteer named Magnus. When they meet, Xavier, who's a telepath, is surprised to realize that he is unable to see into the mind of Magnus. 
He notices as well that Magnus is tattooed with the number 214782 on his forearm and realizes that Magnus is a Holocaust survivor himself. Xavier is brought to a woman named Gabrielle Holler, who is a Holocaust survivor from Holland, who has withdrawn into a catatonic state, and so far, um, no one has been able to help her. Xavier uses his powers to reach into her mind, where he encounters a wall and monsters that her mind created to keep anyone out. He breaks through these and sees her experiences. Um, She was trapped on a transport train. People were crammed in so closely together that Gabrielle's grandmother dies as she's standing next to her. When she arrives at a concentration camp, she is spared from the gas chambers, but only so that the guards can rape her. She's sexually abused by the guards for an extended period of time. She also considers taking her own life, but ultimately can't bring herself to go through with it. After Xavier sees all of this in her mind, he leaves and Gabrielle is brought out of her catatonic state, and she's able to start her recovery in the hospital. After this, Xavier, Gabrielle, and Magnus travel around Israel, and Gabrielle's mental state improves. Xavier and Magnus get along really well, and their conversations lead to discussions about mutants. Magnus calls Xavier an idealistic fool for his ideas about peaceful coexistence between mutants and humans, and he asserts that humanity will only ever fear mutants. He believes that the only way for mutants to survive is to become the dominant species. But they're having this discussion theoretically. Neither one of them has admitted to the other that they have any powers or that they are a mutant. Also, um, extremely unethically, Xavier starts spending time alone with Gabrielle, and she develops feelings for him and kisses him. Rather than stop it, as he should do as her psychologist, Xavier just goes ahead and justifies it to himself that they're providing each other solace. Not what a psychologist should do ever, um, but definitely not with a patient who's been through what Gabrielle has. Um, And yeah, I bet you thought Magneto was supposed to be the villain in this story. Great intro to Xavier. Anyway, Charles doesn't stop the kiss, but it is interrupted by an explosion. Someone has attacked them with a grenade. Um, They're rushed on by a bunch of dudes in these green and yellow Ant-Man-looking suits, and they are trying to capture Gabrielle. And they're speaking German. They do manage to get Gabrielle, and they take her away in their green ships that match their suits. Um, But before all of them can get away, many of the ships are torn apart into pieces while they're in the air, killing the soldiers inside. Obviously, this is the work of Magnus. He's made it to the roof of the hospital, and he's using his powers against them. When he meets up with Xavier, uh, Xavier asks him if it was necessary to kill the soldiers, and Magnus says they would have done the same to them. So, already seeing some fractures in their friendship. One of the soldiers survived um, and is captured. Xavier is able to learn that he's a member of Hydra, a terrorist organization trying to fulfill the goals of the Nazis. Despite Magnus's efforts, though, a ship did manage to escape with Gabrielle. So Xavier and Magnus disguise themselves and travel to Kenya to infiltrate um, the Hydra operation that's going on there. And it turns out Hydra is after a cave filled with gold that the Nazis hid there. Gabrielle was turned into, they describe her as something like a living map, Um, so she has the knowledge in her mind of where to find the gold, 
and that's why they had to find her and capture her. Hydra had a spy in the hospital who'd been keeping tabs on her while she was in her catatonic state, found out she had woken up, and so that's when they went in and captured her. Magnus attacks the soldiers while Xavier uses his telepathic powers to turn them against each other, uh, but the leader, Baron Strucker, is able to resist Xavier's power and attacks them. Magnus, though, is able to stop him. Strucker has, like, this powerful glove that, I don't know, has powers, um, but it's made of metal, so Magneto doesn't have a hard time with that. Um, then Magneto uses his powers to lift Gabrielle and Xavier out of the cave, and when he leaves the cave, he brings all of the Nazi gold with him. Magnus takes the gold and leaves Xavier and Gabrielle behind. He tells Xavier that he needs to realize that mutants have to take power if they are ever going to survive, and he's planning to use the gold to do that. Xavier stays with Gabrielle, um, apparently meaning to continue his unethical relationship. That is where I'm going to leave the story for today. Um, I moved ahead chronologically of some other stories that I'm going to cover, but I thought it was best to keep all of this origin for Magneto together. All of his experiences from the Holocaust with Magda and Anya and his run-in with Xavier has shaped his worldview um, to lead him to become the villain we know as Magneto. Magneto's backstory, I think, makes him one of the most understandable villains. Uh, he recognizes, not incorrectly, that humanity will only fear mutants like himself and Xavier, and that's what shapes his actions going forward. And since he knows firsthand from surviving the Holocaust just how terrible humans can be, you can see why he might feel like he needs to protect mutants from them. Next episode, I'll get back to the stories of other mutants in World War II, but I think Magneto needs and deserves a full backstory before we meet him again later on, because um, he's definitely a foe of the X-Men, makes their life difficult. So this kind of gives us an understanding of why he is the way he is. I have a couple more book suggestions if you're interested in reading more about the history that I mentioned in the episode. For more about the Warsaw Ghetto and the experiences of the people who lived there, the book Words to Outlive Us, Eyewitness Accounts from the Warsaw Ghetto, edited by Michael Grinberg, is a good place to start. And to read about women's experiences in the Holocaust, um, I would recommend Different Voices, Women in the Holocaust by Carol Rittner. I hope that these two episodes gave you a good overview of Magneto's early life, as well as many of the historical events that make up the context of his story. These episodes have definitely been more of a challenge in writing, um, given the nature of the subject matter and having to pull the history alongside it. So I hope I did so in a conscientious way. Thank you so much for listening. I will be back in two weeks with stories of more mutants during World War II. Talk to you then. Bye. Bye.